0: Our scripture today is uh, just a little different than it was in the newsletter. It's Exodus 19, 1-9, and 16-19. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in a fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him.
1: Good to be with you. We have a number of visitors. Welcome here. Uh, The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he once wrote this. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. We are purpose-driven creatures. We we want to live lives that have purpose. We, We seek the why in our lives. In our passage today, as we move through the book of Exodus, we. I'm going to focus on this. There's so much in this passage, I just decided to focus on this first part. Uh, but we're going to focus on the why. Why are the Israelites here? And why has God rescued them? Uh, and we're back, if you notice, we're back at Mount Sinai. We're back at Mount Horeb, same name, but same place. But this is the place where it all started for Moses. This is where he had his encounter with God uh, in the burning bush. God commissioned him to go uh, to Egypt to bring the people out of slavery. And he said, you're going to be back here at this same mountain, with these, with the people, and you're going to worship me, and and here we are. It's you know, it's it's happened, and uh, and we're going to be like we're going to be here for a long time at this mountain. The Israelites are going to be here about a year. In your Bible, as you move uh, farther into the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, you're going to actually the next 59 chapters take place right here at Mount Sinai. It's not until uh, Numbers 10. Uh, that the, the Israelites are going to finally pack things up and start moving again. So if you're, if you're still in the, in the Midway's Bible reading plan, that's actually where you get uh, this week. If, you, uh, if your Bible plan went to the graveyard of Leviticus, which so often happens, it's okay. Catch up or just skip ahead. Just get back on track. It's fine. Don't stress out about that. If you want to keep going with that, I would encourage you to do that. But I want you to see the first words that God communicates to this new nation that's forming at the mountain. You can put up the first slide, Ron. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so first thing that that God has the Israelites do, he tells them, is to remember. To remember this dramatic rescue from slavery in Egypt. As I mentioned earlier, today's Juneteenth, this is this day that celebrates the emancipation of enslaved African Americans And it marks this specific day, June 19th, 1885, when Union soldiers finally make it to Texas and are able to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation, right? That had gone into effect two years earlier. So imagine with me, you're in Texas, and one day you wake up as a slave, and the next day you are free. Now, can you, I mean, we're going to have to do some imagination because we have no idea. Imagine the joy and the shock and the disbelief that this must have come to people as they realized they were free. There's, and, and then it began the celebration in Texas the next year of marking this day that then has continued now up to today. We still, African Americans still today remember this event. You know, just a couple months in back in our story, the Israelites are an enslaved people. Like they, uh, they, they are the property of Pharaoh. They have no freedom. And just like that, just like literally a day, they cross over into freedom. They cross over that Red Sea and they, they move into their own celebration. They're dancing, they're singing on the, on the beach there at the Red Sea. And you can see, as you see these two stories together, you can see why this story has been so important to African Americans then and, and now. See, if, if you and I, if I read, when I read the story of the Exodus, um, I have to think of slavery metaphorically, right? I, the Bible... Certainly speaks of slavery, like for example, sin in terms of slavery, and that is a helpful metaphor because sin does act as a, as a form of bondage. But I don't know, and you don't know what slavery is like. But for those African Americans on, on June 19th, 1865, for the Israelites, they experience a literal movement from slavery into freedom, and God does not want the Israelites to forget this. God wants this day, this event to be burned onto their memory. And sure enough, up in today, you know, the Jewish people celebrate the Exodus, the Passover. So we're going to get to the, we're going to move next to the Ten Commandments, the book of the Covenant. We're going to get this really big section of law, but we're going to start with what did God do for God's people, okay? This is important for us to recognize. Before we get to law, we have gospel. And what he did was he carried them out on eagles' wings. What a Think about this. Like, just imagine What a beautiful and powerful image we have that God is using as this, uh, as this like eagle, this mother eagle swooping in, grabbing Israel, taking it on its wings, and taking it out of slavery. I've never watched. I don't think I've ever watched closely eagles, um, but I've seen. I was recently actually was in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple weeks, and I was watching this mother bird, you know, feed its little uh, its little chick. It had gotten food. And taken. I was thinking about this kind of loving moment, and I've seen. I've been out running and um, come across some Canadian geese, and their goslings are right by them. And man, they are terrifying. Anybody ever had that experience with Canadian geese? Like they will hiss at you, they will charge you. Um, and, and I say that because, like, I just like birds can be fiercely devoted to their their goslings or their chicks or their eaglets, like totally devoted and loving. And I so I like this image of of this God, this, this, this eagle, this fiercely and devoted uh, being that swoops in and grabs the Israelites and takes them out. But we also see that this is a relationship. This is a relationship of love. Okay? God doesn't just uh, grab the Israelites out of fl- slavery, kind of drop them off wherever in the desert. No, he takes them to him. And what he does is he calls them my treasured possession. This word, this word treasured communicates that uh, the Israelites, this this people at the mountain, these are, this is royal property. Okay? Uh, we read in this verse that the whole earth belongs to the Lord. Everything is the Lord's. But out of all that, God chooses this particular people. As one commentator put it, he's, like a, he's like, Israelites are like the crown jewel amidst all the nations. I mean, think about this. What a, what a change. These, guys, these people, this ragtag group of people who were in slavery just a couple months ago, uh, they go from this being exploited slaves, the, the lowest on the totem pole, to now as the, the, the creator of heaven and earth, they are the creator's crown jewel. And it's important that we get this part first again, because as I said, God is going to start to lay out, what does it mean to be a nation? What does it be, need to be my people? But he's going to start with the rescue, right? Gospel precedes law. Okay, verses 5 and 6, you can put that up although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So now we're getting to that purpose statement, okay? God rescues the Israelites. Why does God rescue the Israelites? There's a purpose. There's a why. They have been rescued, brought into personal relationship with God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So think about this for a minute. What's a priest? We don't, I think in our tradition, we don't use that language very much. If we do, it's we might talk about the priesthood of all believers, but I don't even know if we really know what we're talking about when we say that. Priests in the Bible are our middlemen. Okay? They're mediators. Priests, uh, if God is here and the people are here, the priests are the ones that stand in the middle. And the priests are do, do will do for Israel what Moses is doing now. Moses is receiving the revelation from God. He's passing that on to the people. Um, so in one way, is priests are teachers. They communicate to the people of God, what, what God desires. Uh, there are also people that will soon a- offer sacrifices uh, on behalf of the people to restore their relationship with God. Okay? So, so priests serve as mediators between God and people, and at their core, they are servants of God. And God is telling the Israelites, okay, that you know what, you know what a priest is. That's what, you, that's what you're going to be for me to the nations. Okay? Just as you have these priests in your community, uh, that act as mediators between me and you. You're going to do that for the whole world, and it's easy. It's easy for us to think as we get to Sinai, we think it sounds like there's a new covenant happening. In some ways, there is this new, this new sacred agreement that's made between God and people. But we are we are continuing a long uh, promise that's been made by God to His people. We go back um, if you remember, like things in Genesis three begin to just spiral downward. Okay, we've got we've got the garden. And then we move to uh, the, you know, the first murder. We've got eventually the, uh, the flood. We've got the Tower of Babel. Uh, the Tower of Babel. And, and, you know, humanity from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is just mostly just this spiral downward, and it becomes very, very dark. Creation has rebelled against the Creator. Things have not gone well. And at this point in our story in Genesis 12, this pivotal moment, God, the, the story of the Bible zeroes in on this one guy, this old guy, got no children, and it tells him, like, from you and your wife who has no children, I'm going to build a nation, okay? And the important thing about that promise to recognize is that I'm going to use you as a nation to bless all of the earth, okay? So this is the way, this is the plan that God has to get creation back on track. He's going to take this one person, he's going to build a family, which is going to become a nation, and that nation will be then a light to the rest of the world, a light to the Gentiles, okay? And, it's, and this is important. I want to point that out because it's, it's easy to read this language and think, Uh, What God is saying to the Israelites is, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, like, blessings, like, just tons of blessings are going to come to you. I'm just going to pour out. Life for you is just going to get better and better and better. And there is some correlation between how uh, the Israelites obey and what happens, but but that's not the point here. As Christopher Wright points out, the emphasis is not on on Israel getting blessed, it's Israel being a blessing. Let me say that again, okay? the point of what god is doing with the israelites it's not so they can just have this blessing it can be this kind of self-contained blessing is that eventually israel will be the people uh, that blesses the whole world how are they going to do that they're going to be priests to the world they're going to stand before uh, they're going to stand between god and the rest of the nations as a mediator of who god and they're going to they're going to be a holy nation okay so just as priests are are required to be set apart required to be distinct Uh, from the rest of the population, the Israelites are going to be this distinctive uh, holy people. Meaning the Israelites are going to act differently than the nations around them. So part of the way the other nations are going to be blessed is they're going to come to know the true God and the way they're going to do it is by by watching this distinctive people. These people who do this stuff that looks really strange. Like it's going to look weird. Like for example, uh, as we'll get to, the, the other nations they don't have a problem worshiping multiple gods. For you, I'm it. Okay, one God, which would have been very strange then. Other nations, they you know, they don't ever take a break from working. You, every seven days, you're going to just stop working for a complete 24 hours. You're going to prepare your food differently than the other nations. I you know, I when I was in Israel, we had this. Um, I had the experience of bumping into a very distinctive cultures that still exist among many Jewish people today. So example, I was there on a Friday, you know, sundown comes, Shabbat starts. At least for practicing Jews, everything stops, right? You can just, you know in the city that something is different because Shabbat is there. Uh, I went to the Western Wall, which is the most holy place for the Jewish people in the world, and you walk around there and you see, you feel like you are in somewhere you've never been before. There are strange hats being worn by men. There's strange hairstyles that I'm not used to there's clothes I'm not used to. There's this kind of bobbing at the Western Wall as the Jewish people pray. There's all this, all this stuff that I don't really know what's going on. I feel like I'm in a foreign culture. Because there's all these cultural markers that are setting them apart. Uh, we stayed, for example, at a Jewish kibbutz, and uh, it's come like over the years, mostly just a hotel, but they practiced kosher. Like I've never been somewhere... Um, where you practice kosher, and the big thing was you had to separate the meat and the, the dairy. You can't eat them together, which, which goes back to this verse about not cooking a goat in its mother's milk. So, meaning at the evening, we, you, know, you get your bread, and somebody in the group asks for butter, but you can't do that because there's meat being served that evening. Like, there's no butter. Uh, you can have chicken, you can have beef, uh, you can have fish, but no dairy. Uh, next morning, all the dairy comes out. There's cheese, and there's milk, and there's yogurt, but there's no meat. Like, that's why like, cheeseburgers don't work, right? You can't combine these two things. And I was just, I've never seen anything like this. This was very strange to me. I was bumping into a distinct lifestyle. It was, it was thought, it was belief, but it was action too. They were doing things that I wasn't used to, and I was taking notice. Hey, God is calling the Israelites to be this holy nation, this consecrated nation, this nation that's going to be set apart, that's going to do things distinctively from all the other nations around it. Okay, so that, and this is the part I think that we can miss. We can get kind of trapped in, and this happens all the time, where you just do things for the sake of doing. So that, all those distinctive practices, being a priesthood, being a holy nation, so that God can draw the people to them. Okay, God, did, God didn't free the Israelites from slavery just so they'd be free, just so they could kind of do their own thing. God sets the Israelites free so they can serve them, so they can do God's thing. And the way they're going to serve God is they're going to have this distinctive role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that God is going to then use to draw the nations to him. Okay, so hold that in your mind. We're going to, we're going to jump up, way up into to the book of 1 Peter, a thousand years or more. Uh, we're on the other side of the cross, and now we're going to kind of hold that in our minds. Okay, can you put up that next slide, Ron? Okay, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like, for me, like Peter's totally plagiarizing Exodus. It sounds like he's ripping off, which is a good thing. You can do that. Because he's using the same exact language, essentially, that, that the writer of Exodus is using. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That sounds very much like what God told the Israelites. And what Peter's saying all these, you know, thousand plus years later is that these things that were once spoken to the Israelites, now they're being to you as followers of Jesus who've been grafted into the covenant. That's being spoken to you. That's who you are. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You belong to God. Even the language about being called out of the darkness and into the light, it sounds very much like freedom language. That's Exodus language. Like we don't know, again, as I said, we don't know what it's like to literally move from slavery to freedom, but we know the power of being liberated from the bondage of sin, from the power of death, from evil. We know, we know what it can be like to be in such a desperate situation. We recognize in our life that the only way I'm getting out of this situation is if somebody, an eagle swoops in and extracts me out of the situation, okay? That's my only hope is rescue. But just like the Israelites are not free just to be freed, uh, we are not free just to do our own thing, to just be free, okay? Often I think times we, we, um, we, we misunderstand freedom, I think, in our culture. Uh, it, one of the big things that our culture tries to tell us is that freedom from is enough. Most of what you hear in our culture is about being freed from things, Okay? We, we, we want to be freed from constraints. We don't want people to tell us what to do. Uh, we want to be free to do basically what we want to do. That's kind of the ideal of freedom. That's not this is why we need to steep ourselves in the Bible because that's not how the Bible sees freedom. Okay? That's, that's our culture's understanding of freedom. That is not a biblical understanding of freedom. A biblical understanding of freedom is that you were not rescued to do whatever you want. You were rescued to serve God. Okay, in the Bible, freedom from is never enough. Freedom from is never enough. It always is freedom to. What are you freed to? And what what God, what we hear in First Peter here, again that sounds very familiar, says we're freed to, to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation. So let me ask you this are, do you do I when I look at it, do you have that, have you internalized that? Are you a royal priesthood? Like, did you wake up this morning and be like, I'm a priest? Remember when we talked about what priests are? Priests are mediators between people and God. Priests uh, help people come to the knowledge of who God is. And I, you know, I want to ask you, do you own that as part of your vocation? Like, you, if I go up to you and I ask you who you are, there's a good chance, and this is fine, I would respond the same way. Like, who are you? I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm an administrator. I'm a nurse. I'm a business owner. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. I'm a retiree. Whatever would come to your mind. But what about a priest are you a priest? Because if you are someone who's been baptized and has professes Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in the priesthood. That's what, that's what Peter says. Meaning you've been tasked with representing God. You've been tasked with, with standing between the nations and God and proclaiming the good news of God's salvation to the world so that they can come to know this God. Like You are rescued by God to be holy. How does that word sit with you, Holy. Uh, You know, I find this kind of, maybe not here, but I find this kind of strange, but almost the word holy has become pejorative in our culture. It's almost become a negative thing to use the word holy. And that is a problem because as followers of Jesus, we are called to be holy. And I think maybe what, understandably what the problem is, is that we've come to think of holiness as kind of a holier than thou, right? That is for sure a problem. Like Jesus, like just go to the Gospels, Jesus has lots and lots to say about that. We, actually, we touched on it in our children's story today. But that's something completely different. Holiness is a good thing. Holiness is not a bad thing. The Bible is very clear that as followers of Jesus, there's a lot that's required of us in, in terms of how we act, in terms of how we engage with the world, and in terms of what sets us apart from the world. Again, no, but not so that we can earn God's favor. Remember the, the order of how things worked uh, in, in the Exodus. The Israelites are freed, and then they're given the law. We don't strive, and I know it's easy to start thinking, like, if I can be just a little bit more holy, then I will finally be uh, beloved in God's sight. I'll finally have earned God's favor, and then God can finally use me. No, that's, that's the opposite of the way it works in the Bible. God doesn't come to say us uh, and say, you know, if you... If you can attain a certain level of holiness, then I'll call you out of the, the darkness into the light. Right? God calls us out of the darkness into the light while we're still in sin, and he makes us his people. Okay? Not, not, not a holier-than-thou people, not like a, a lauding our morality over other people, but people that are called to live in a distinct way, to live a holy life, uh, to live in a way that stands out, to live in a way that like, me at that kibbutz in, in, in Israel, see a galley, people bump into us and are like, man, something's kind of weird here. Like, I don't really understand. Something's kind of different. Like, just that, like, those kosher regulations made me kind of pause and be like, I've never thought about this. I, I never thought there was a problem eating meat and cheese, you know, dairy together. Like, I'm going to think about this. Um, not that I, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not kosher now, but I'm just saying like, it's made me stop and think. I want people when they bump into us to think like, man, something's strange. Let me give you let me give you an example. Like I, I was, I grew up in a Christian home and was in very much Christian circles for most of my life. Uh, I went to a Christian college. I went off to, to serve in the Peace Corps in, in West Africa, and I was around a, a bunch of Americans that I was very much in the minority as a Christian. This is a, kind of a new experience for me, uh, and, and people would like get to know me and be like, "Huh, I like heard about you, people." <laughs> But like, I know, this is interesting, I don't, like, like, literally, like, this was like 20 years ago, and I was still experiencing a little bit, and I think they, like, I think they wanted to ask about some of my beliefs, because they'd heard about, like, rumors about these odd beliefs, like, like, you all, like, y'all, um, y'all don't believe in sex outside of marriage, like, is that, is that real, is that, is that true, that seems kind of crazy, and I remember, um, uh, like, answering that question, and I got, as I answered that question, of, yeah, we believe that sex is between you know, a married couple, um, I got this kind of combination of surprise, like, huh, people still think that way. Um, Like, maybe a tiny bit of admiration and, like, probably a decent amount of scorn, and, like, that's problematic, okay? Like, offense. I I almost guarantee, like, you have some story like that. Like, maybe for you uh, who grew up in this church, uh, maybe you went to school, and the kids asked you, what are your convictions about violence and war? And you gave an answer, and you said something like, You know, as a follower of Jesus, I I do not believe I can kill someone. In fact, I believe I'm called to love my enemy. And the response you got was maybe surprise, maybe some admiration, probably a good bit of scorn and offense. And you probably had this feeling like, I do not fit in here. You probably looked around, you're like, I'm different. Not only do I not fit in here, but man, people find me downright offensive. And if that has happened to you ever in you, like Peter's like, don't be surprised. Peter's not at all surprised that that's happened to you. Because right after the last verse I, I read to you about being a royal priesthood and holy nation, Peter writes this. We'll go to our next slide. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, Notice that. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Like, look at what Peter says. Peter expects, as you live into your identity as a follower of Jesus, as you live into this vocation of being a royal priest and a holy nation, uh, as you abstain from sinful desires, you can be—this is really surprising— you can expect to be accused of doing wrong. Let me say that again. As you live into your vocation as a follower of Jesus— You can expect, according to Peter, for people to accuse you of doing wrong. If you are striving to follow the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, not only are people going to disagree with you politely, they're going to accuse you of doing harm. Like, you're going to feel like a foreigner. You're going to feel like an alien. You're going to feel like, you're going to be told, you are totally out of step with the times. You are totally out of step with the culture. And this has probably always been the case. It clearly goes back to when Peter was talking but, but here's the reality, and I don't, I don't mean this as like an alarmist way, but we are moving more and more, and this has been happening for a long time, into a post-Christian society. And there's going to be things about that that are really hard. There's going to be some benefits to that. But one of the things is that you're going to feel being a follower of Jesus more acutely. Like, you're just going to, you're going to be aware of it more. Your, your beliefs and practices as a follower of Jesus are just going to, over time, if things continue as they do, they're just going to look stranger and stranger to the culture around us. And I think there's a couple different ways that we can respond to that. A couple different ways that people have always responded. Is we could withdraw from the world. Okay, that, this is what, and like, like, as Mennonites, there's a little bit of this impulse in us. Like we, there, I mean, there's a little bit, I, I have a little bit of this impulse myself. Withdraw from the world, kind of look around at the way things are going in society that looks really dark and say, like, we need to withdraw, otherwise we're going to be corrupted by this. So that's, that's what withdraw is one way. To respond. Another way, I think this is actually way more likely, we can just assimilate with our culture. We can just uh, more and more adopt the practices and beliefs of the wider culture and, and not really do the work to kind of think about, are these uh, teachings clashing with the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament? And what ends up happening if we go that path, and again, I think that's much more likely the path we're to take than withdrawal, is that we just start looking more and more like the world around us. There's nothing distinctive about us. To use the language of Jesus, there's nothing salty about us. There's nothing that sets us apart. There's nothing that, that people bump into and they take notice because we just we act like everybody else. And according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when you lose that saltiness, when you lose that distinctiveness, you lose your value in God's kingdom. Remember, why, why are the Israelites called to be a kingdom of priests and holy nation? Is it so they can be a holier-than-thou people? no. They're called to live a holy life. They're called to be priests so that other people can come to knowledge of the true God, so they can bless the nations, right? That, that could be another way we go wrong here is we hold on to the teachings, but we use that just to heap just to scorn at other people. That's not our task either. Our task is to bless other people, to bring them into the knowledge of the true and living God who has saved us. Like Our objective is not to go around saying, like, we're the chosen people, here. our objective is to be light to the Gentiles, the, or light to the world, the way that Israel was called to be light to the Gentiles. Um, we're called to be salt in life. We're called to be distinctive, to live in a contrast way to the society around us. And ultimately, this is what's really important about what Peter's saying. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. They're, they might accuse you of doing wrong, but I think it's so interesting that Peter says, but they're, they're going to see your good deeds, and they're going to glorify God. They might accuse you of doing wrong, but they're going to see those deeds, and eventually they're going to glorify God on the day he visits. That's how they come to know God. That's the goal. Again, the challenge is how do we not escape the world, but now how do we not assimilate into the world? How do we remain salty? How do we remain distinct? How do we remain a priesthood and a holy nation? There's, just, there's a book called, uh, by Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods, Christian Distinctiveness, in the Roman world, I haven't read it, but I've read some kind of couple summaries of it. And uh, the book is about how, in the Roman world, first couple centuries uh, when Christianity was, when Christians were just this small Jewish sect, um, you know, it seems very unlikely that Christianity would spread. It just seems almost impossible when you look back, because um, they 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 bumped up against all kinds of opposition, um, and and people in the Roman world like just thought Christians were so weird, like I, some of the words are like silly, stupid, irrational. Hateful, perverse, harsh judgment. like These are like, people in the Roman world thought Christians were just very strange. And yet, Christianity wins over the Roman Empire. Okay, Even though they're seen initially as a threat to society, Christianity wins over the Roman Empire. And, and Hurtado, you can put up the slide, he, he points out, he thinks there's five distinctive features which separated Christianity from the rest of the world. I'm going to read these to you. Okay, number one, this this is according to Hurtado. The church was multiracial and multiethnic, with a high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines. There was a high value for caring for the poor, and those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Radical generosity. First one, just uh, diversity. Number three, it was a staunch and its active resistance of infanticide and abortion. Number four, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. Number five, it was nonviolent both on a personal level and a political level. Okay, Christianity, according to Hurtado, doesn't win over the Roman Empire because it adopts all the practices of the Roman Empire. It wins over the Roman Empire because it's different, it's distinctive. I mean, talk about strange. Like, this list looks strange to me. You know why it looks strange to me? It's because almost nobody in society will allow you to hold all these positions together. Most of what will say, a couple of those are okay, a couple of those are not okay, holding that together is not okay. Like progressives are going to be more excited about the first two and have deep problems with the last couple. The fifth one is just kind of weird for conservatives and liberals. Conservatives are going to have problems with the first couple Uh, and not problems with the next one, and they're probably going to have problems with the the one about nonviolence. You see how strange this looks for us? And yet these are the historic teachings of the Christian church, right? It doesn't matter. If you lean left or lean right, as you bump into the historic teachings of the church, you're going to find that it's a little bit strange. And that is why, I've said this many times, we are not going to look to the political left or the political right to figure out what we believe. There is so much pressure on us right now to do that. What I want to look at is Jesus. I want to look at the New Testament. That's what I want to use to guide us as a congregation on how we figure out. And guess what? It's going to make us look weird. It's not going to fit into a box, it's going to look really strange. We cannot stop being a distinct people. We've got to be salty, we've got to be holy. And ultimately, as if we assimilate more and more into the culture, we will lose that ability to point to Jesus because we've lost our saltiness. You, as the priesthood, as the holy nation, have what the world is looking for. Is there any moment in my life where there is more of a desperate need for hope in the world? I don't know, at least in my lifetime, there is. We offer massive amounts of hope as followers of Jesus. Jesus. Is there any? I look around and I see so many people desperate for a purpose for their life, desperate to give their lives to something bigger than themselves. We offer that. We give our lives to Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. We have massive amounts of purpose in our life, we have massive amounts of why. And it can carry us through anything. You are a treasured possession, you are royal property. You are a chosen people. Man, you were purchased at a great price. You belong to the king. And the king has given you a vocation. The king has given you a high calling to be a royal priesthood and to be a holy people. And that by being that distinct people, by being that salt and light in the world, you and I might humbly, lovingly, boldly point people to Jesus. It is not an easy task is why we need the spirit of God it is why you and I need to be going to God daily and saying help me discern because I don't really know what to do here I want to live a distinct life but I don't even know what that looks like it's not always clear-cut you and I need to be going to God and saying God send the spirit to guide me and you need to be going to God and you're saying I am not my own I was bought with a price I don't get to choose what I do with my life I have given my life to the King. I belong to the King. Use me for your purposes. I pray that your Spirit will empower me and guide me to live a life that makes people stop, that makes people bump into people at Midway and say, what's different? Something's kind of strange. And
0: I want that. And I want you to point me to what you have.